Welcome to this fourth episode of Hacking for Cash, an SP special podcast series about state-sponsored cyber espionage targeting nation's intellectual property. My name is Bart Hogeveen. If you remember our last episode, we talked about intellectual property, what it is, how it's being protected nationally and internationally. We also explored the differences in US and Chinese perspectives on intellectual property, IP protection and their theft. As you remember, it were President Xi and Obama who, in 2015, agreed that no state should be involved in the business of stealing IP through cyber means. We discussed this in episode number one. A great deal of intellectual property sits with research and development institutions, including in public universities. Universities initiate and conduct foundational research, including on issues of strategic relevance to a nation's national and economic security. If you want to get a feel for which institutions in your country are involved in high-tech research, I suggest you check SP's Critical Technology Tracker. In recent years, several governments, such as Japan, Germany, France, Australia and the UK, have started to take the issue of knowledge and research security more seriously. Defined as the unintended and inappropriate transfer of knowledge or research related to sensitive technologies. It refers to risks associated with malign foreign interference with knowledge institutions, their research assets, scientific integrity and academic freedoms. Part of this occurs in the physical world and another part through cyberspace. So that brings us to the question, how are our universities protecting their networks, systems and communications? What do our universities see as the biggest threats and risks? And how can they assure that critical and sensitive research data is protected from illegal access, theft, and robbery. Today, my colleague Gatva Priyandita addresses these questions with the CISOs, the Chief Information Security Officers of two Australian universities. Nadia Taggart, who is the Chief Information Security Officer at Western Sydney University and formerly a Cybersecurity Director at Australian Parliament. And with Anna Akilina, who is the CISO at the University of Technology, Sydney. She also has a previous career working on cyber for the UK and Australian governments. Gatra, over to you. Thanks, Bart. Universities, as well as other types of research and development entities, are some of the largest producers of IP. Now, some of the IP may end up as patents, trademarks, or industrial designs, but much more remains just sensitive information. Some may end up getting published, and other research, including sensitive or commercially relevant data, remains unpublished. University research covers topics that touch on all aspects of our society, our economy, and our lives. So that also includes areas that are currently at the epicenter of geostrategic competition. Academics are doing foundational research on defense technology, as well as renewable energy, quantum, bioengineering, and smart agriculture. Research from ASPE's critical tech tracker shows that the U.S. and China go head-to-head in so-called high-impact research into critical and emerging technologies. Whoever has the edge will gain economic as well as strategic advantages for time to come. Universities feature prominently in the tech tracker, partly for the research they publish and partly for the relations they entertain with international research partners. After all, academic research and academic talent are truly global. Universities also possess data of their staff and students, people who are leaders in their fields of research or names of people who go on and occupy the highest positions of public office. A very high-profile cyber incident in Australia involved a breach affecting the Australian National University, or the ANU. In 2018, it found out that it had fallen victim to what was called a sophisticated malicious actor 
that sought to reach the database of payroll and student data. While the forensics did not suggest the actor accessed or displayed any interest in files containing general administrative documents or research data, the incident was a warning to Australia's universities. Now, in subsequent years, the Australian government worked with the universities on things like guidelines to counter foreign interference in the Australian university sector, it established the University Foreign Interference Task Force, and commissioned the development of a suite of training resources as part of its enhancing cybersecurity across Australia's university sector project. But let's hear from the professionals. Why do the CISOs think their universities may be a high-value target for state-based hackers? I think for many reasons. We do have a lot of valuable data. Um, we have a lot of students, a lot of staff, a lot of partners. Um, and I think because of some of the things we've been speaking about, perhaps there hasn't been the same hygiene, though, though to be honest, it seemed apparent from some of the hacks last year and in other organisations that many organisations are like this. In terms of deleting data once we no longer need it. So we hold a lot of personal information, we hold a lot of health information, and then there's the the areas of research that may be of interest to to other governments, to hackers who can sell it on. Uh, So we just have a lot of valuable information, as well as perhaps uh, more likely to have some vulnerabilities that are easier to exploit than in some organisations that can lock things down more securely. Yeah, I'd agree with Anna. It's it's the volume of the data that we hold. Yeah, we're not very good at eradicating, and that is the key topic at my university at the moment that we're looking at. Um, but it's that breadth of data as well. So you've almost got something of interest for everyone and all levels of the threat actor pyramid. Um, it's you know we cover all interests in a university, particularly when you get to the very big universities. You both talk about the volume and breadth of data that needs protection. Is it essentially an issue of data protection, or is it a lot more than that? Is it, for instance, a matter of knowledge and research security? varies on the area that you're speaking to. So when I started at the university, the first thing I did was I went and met all of the senior leaders and I, you know, to elicit their understanding, because of course that would give me the biggest picture of the support I was going to get. And unequivocally, everybody understood, but where they perhaps placed more of the emphasis was around PII and not because of the value of PII, but PII is much more, when we talk about how we protect the information and do we understand the importance, fundamentally, you have to understand that you don't own it because when you think you own it, it's up to you as to how much you protect it. But when you inherently understand you are not the owner of the information, you go through a bit of a different thought process. So when we look at PII, and particularly, I think everyone working in a university really at the forefront of their mind is understanding students and many vulnerable populations that you have in your university. So there's unanimous agreement about supporting and protecting all of the information relating to students. But when you start to get to research, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And I know one of the questions I asked was, who thinks they own the research and who actually owns the research? And the second part is quite difficult to answer because there's a lot of research that's done that doesn't get published. When it's published, it's much easier to define who owns it and then the value that you place on that. But there's a huge amount of research that may never actually go anywhere. So the effort 
required sometimes to go through the process of putting value on that and the protection on that when it might never actually be deemed to be valuable complicates the discussion. But when you look at the areas that are doing critical research, so areas such as, you know, we've got the Defence Industry Security Program, we have elements with space, those researchers intimately understand the importance of protecting that. And I want to emphasise, I think, it, you know, research is such a varied discipline. There are some areas that has no association with intellectual property, perhaps with personal information, yes. Um, so, so the intellectual property question does vary in its importance and, and the level of awareness required varies across different types of research. Re- the research discipline also does have very strong processes in place around ethics and usually data um, management plans. So one thing you know we're looking at doing and, and are doing is working stronger awareness or, or controls into those existing processes to help uh, researchers understand what may, may be required. But yes, with the increasing emphasis by government as well on the, you know, the importance of certain areas and foreign interference, foreign influence. I think that the researchers involved in those areas are becoming increasingly acutely aware of the need to be careful, but also the, the processes they have to go through around due diligence and, and things like that. So it's, you know, it's, it's evolving and it's changing. And also the, there's increasingly industry collaboration for research. And obviously, the industry partners also bring with them their own uh, sort of structures and processes and need to to um, harness the value of the intellectual property uh, involved in that research. And that's a good point, Anna, with that collaboration. I don't think I've reviewed as many contracts ever where the research partners are stipulating the cybersecurity controls, reporting and feedback that they want to receive to make sure things are protected. I sometimes want to reply back, do we get this in reverse too on your company? Are there other things that are problematic for universities to get under control? And what's the level of cybersecurity maturity in the university system at the moment? I mean, I think Australia as a whole, not not just universities, were slightly behind perhaps in embracing the need to invest more in cybersecurity. But in my experience, certainly universities are now very well aware of the need to do so. And they take the risk seriously, but obviously have to balance it against the need to keep operating as a university, so be open and collaborative and share um, and have lots of different partners involved, which does just make it slightly more complicated. I'd agree with Anna. I think universities do take it very seriously. I know in my own university, I have incredible top-down support from the committees, from the senior executive. I don't think I've ever had this much support. They are the last stakeholders I need to win. But I think we're where universities perhaps are struggling, and I don't think it's unique to universities, is, okay, we take it seriously, but what does this mean for how we need to do things differently or how do we need to change? And like Anna says, there's always constraints and resources, and, again, universities aren't unique here. So, you know, as our job as CISOs, that's what we need to do to help the university take what they consider seriously and work out how does this work with our strategic objectives so that we can have that risk managed approach moving forward. Because when you go into a university, again, probably not unique, just to universities, huge amount of legacy environments. Uh, How do you navigate that legacy environment with your need and pressure for providing that ultimate student experience? We've got these digitally native students coming through 
who expect the latest tech, they're used to using it. And that's quite a lot to balance, even just from an IT investment, let alone you're looking at that investment peppered with everything else that's university core business. But I also want to say that increasingly, I think there's a very weak link in a lot of our suppliers and you know the need for every organization within the supply chain to really take cybersecurity seriously. Universities don't have as much muscle as some of the ma- massive organizations or very strong organizations like the financial sector to put pressure on vendors to improve. And we do need to use some quite niche vendors who also, I think, find it quite hard to implement cybersecurity. So to me, that's also a weak link. And, and maybe, I mean, at the heart, I guess it all comes back to people, doesn't it? They build, design um, and use the technologies, but it it's hard. Yeah, there are many weaker spots. I'd agree with you on that last one, Anna. Um, That's something that I've noticed quite different coming out of federal government into a university is the vendors and the vendors that you work with and where they might put the pressure on the uni to accept certain things that sometimes I think, oh, I don't know, you would try this out on somebody else. Um, that's, That's been quite disappointing. So you will talk about universities being relatively small parties compared to the bigger vendors and their negotiation power. You talk about the balance between, on the one hand, being open and collaborative, and on the other hand, securing what needs to be secured. Now, what are typical information security weaknesses in these kinds of operating environments? One thing I want to add in, though, is that cybersecurity is layered. So you can have weak areas in in some places um, that are compensated for by being able to put controls in, in in other places. So, for example, we we can only do so much about lockdowning, lock, lock, locking down systems and bring your own devices allowed. So we put in controls like multi-factor authentication across the board to help limit that. Um, so people are often said to be the weakest link, but I think they can also be your strongest um, supporters. So weaker areas, though, is I think certainly in my experience at the university, we, we do have quite a high turnover of new people coming in, new collaborations, new partnerships, um, new technologies coming in. And, and that just creates, um, it is a weaker area, you know, it creates vulnerabilities that, that um, can be hard to embrace as quickly as they need to be um, looked at. Sienna, I was going to go with people every time. Um, because you but more particularly, a university is quite a permissive environment. We don't have control over who comes on our network. You get the marks, you get into the degree, you get on our network. So we can't have, and Anna's already touched on this, those same preventative controls that you might have in another organisation. Um, you don't get to kick off users um, in the same way that you might in another organisation. But like Anna said, there's always the promise that they might also be your strongest defence, but it's not even just your end user who might unintentionally click on a link. It might even be the ICT project manager, you know, who pushes a project through often to appease a demanding business owner without perhaps fully understanding the security risks that some of their decisions might introduce. Now, moving to thinking about what can be done Where do our solutions lie? Now, in our work engaging government agencies in the Indo-Pacific, we tend to focus on issues around awareness raising, knowing what's happening, around recognition, recognizing that you may be seen as a high-value target and that you possess information valuable to others, and acceptance that you need to take some sort of action to mitigate risks, build resilience, and perhaps also take preventive steps to protect really critical assets. How is that thinking among CISOs in Australia? Mm. I mean, certainly, I think there's just growing awareness um everywhere really of the need 
to protect things more um, and the scale of some of the cyber intrusions that have been taking place over, I'd say, 15 years, 20 years, probably. But there was just less awareness of it for a long time. And then government has more emphasis on it. So if you want defence funding, if you want, um, you know, to work in critical infrastructure sectors, there are now more sort of regulatory requirements as well. Now, in recent years, we see a lot of government focus on boosting cybersecurity requirements for defence, government and critical infrastructure. It's obviously really important to guarantee national security and to keep critical parts of society running. But in this Hacking for Cash series, we are exploring what can be done about the cybersecurity of parts of the economy that are not classified as critical, but still very important, if not essential to a nation's future competitiveness, economic growth, and employment. Nadia? It's always a combination of factors, but you'd also, I mean, you'd have to just not be watching the news at all. And I think that's where it's, what I'm appreciating seeing is not just that incidents are happening and we're hearing about them, but we're hearing about the adverse business impacts and the financial costs. You know, we're, we're drawing out that, well, so what of the incident? And I think that's helping make it very real what the consequences are. And the minute we understand the consequences, it's becomes tangible to the different areas for how they should contribute rather than just being this abstract thing that if you have an incident, a cybersecurity team deals with it and you don't have to get involved. It's very, very much not that case, of course, from anyone working in cyber would understand. Okay, so clearly there is a growing recognition of the impact of cyber incidents on operations and potential financial costs, but how does that translate into universities' actions? Well, I think we can do a lot that most organisations can do. We can still implement a variety of preventative controls. I think for a university where we become a bit different because we're more permissive than a lot of particularly, I mean, I've come from federal government, uh, we're definitely more permissive than federal government, is we do focus more on how quickly we can detect and respond because things will be more likely to get through. I mean, we still have environments where anyone with a credit card can buy IT and connect it back to the main system. I agree completely. We, I mean, all organisations to some extent need to look at implementing the same kind of basic level of controls. And you know, this is what insurance companies look for, what all the standards and frameworks say you need to do to be good at cybersecurity. And certainly um, at UTS, we've adopted the National Institute's Um, the Standards and Technology Cybersecurity Framework, the NIST framework, and we align to the Essential 8 and do assessments against all of those. Um, I think one of the variations perhaps to some organisations is in some instances we can only really implement these controls around our most critical assets. To try to do, you know, it's such a complicated and large environment, we can't do it across absolutely everything. So so a very risk-based approach. Um, and in my discussions with CISOs at other universities and research organisations, it's very similar that you need to be very prioritised around knowing what does matter most and ensuring that they have the strongest level of controls in place. And then, yes, the detection and response. We we know it's more likely that something will happen, mostly accidentally, um, through through someone not being able to, to follow procedures or processes appropriately um, and we have to be quite open so being able to monitor more effectively detect earlier and respond very well we put a lot of effort into that but in terms of what we can't do I'm going to come back to that vendor one and where you know you look at what the US is doing and how they hold vendors to account from the government and those advice and guidelines 
that's something that I think collectively as universities, we're starting to make good traction as speaking as a collective on our minimum expectations and setting those out where we're a bit more powerful. But it'd be great to see it not just having to come from us as a collective. Nadia, Anna, uh, you're pointing towards awareness raising, towards defining your crown jewels in terms of data, uh, systems, and intellectual property. And you raised the need for collective action by universities together or in a public-private partnership. Can you tell us what universities are doing now and which you think are bearing fruit? Yeah, I mean, I think some of them will be very standard. Um, you know, we do have cybersecurity training that we ask all staff to do. We do engagement workshops, put up posters. We have digital screens with messages on it. Um, but increasingly, we are trying to engage more directly and put in sort of more due diligence processes um, that all staff and in particular sort of higher priority areas need to, to follow. Uh, Nadja, are you, you similar? Yeah, we do all those core bread and butter things that everybody does. One of the things that I've started since I've been here is defining um, whether you call them user groups of interest or high value targets, it probably depends on whether you're blue or red team. And then looking at how can we contextualize the information we provide so that it's directly relevant to what they do. So for example, this week I gave a half hour briefing with the team in our transnational education who travel overseas a lot. So taking that and putting the very specific on how it might change when they travel versus when they're in their normal business environment. Uh, we've had requests from the finance team who see probably more targeted social engineering uh, to understand the specific lures that they might need to be observing for because they're very, very different to the lures used for students. And again, our comms that go out to students, I think I'm learning now I'm closer to my mother in age because the comms team producing the comms targeted to students is very different to the way that I would approach it. And I'm having to learn to stand back and go, yeah, I am not that generation anymore. So the language changes the way they approach and sell it because at the end of the day, it's always a hearts and minds game. Uh, you know, the language used for the students and the way that we tackle it to students, it's short, catchy videos and sound bites that go out. And then if um, so on in September, I'm doing a deep dive to our big committees because our two big committees that I report to, so the Audit and Risk Committee and the University Infrastructure Committee, had some very, very specific questions and some really wanted, and this is why I love working at my uni, I get so much top-down support, really wanted to understand not just the reporting, but the threat, and even are we even using the right benchmarks? Are we even, so when I pitch to them our target state, which helps me define the gap and where the risk is, how do they even know that I've picked the right star, target state? They want to know the rationale behind that. And I think that's what we're also seeing. And again, I don't think universities are particularly unique much better questions are being asked now that really start to get to the heart of the problem rather than that surface kind of education and training we used to do. We're seeing that link and the bigger drive, I think we're also seeing change if we're looking at how do we communicate this, is tying it into the broader security discussion. So the overlay with physical security, the overlay with foreign interference, um, which I suppose is where in our world we tend to call it more tech-enabled, 
rather than just pure cyber. Yeah, and similarly, I mean, tremendous uh, support across you know the the UTS executive um, and all areas we we engage with. So we also try and distill very specific case studies. So, for example, if there's you know been a researcher that set up their own cloud instance outside of the supported environment and they've suffered a ransomware attack, you know, we'll use that as a case study to try and bring home you know this could could have been your research and you lost would have lost it all if you you know don't work within some of the the processes and structures that. That we set up, um, and and similarly we run table, cyber tabletop exercises with executive audiences, operational audiences, uh, and we, you know we're going to be planning um, more specific ones on sort of with, with research organisations as well. As a final part of this conversation, is there a role for federal and state level governments to support the cybersecurity of knowledge institutions such as universities, big and smaller? And I think, yeah, again, government support can be variable in what's meant by that. I think that the government certainly encourages uh, very strong cybersecurity measures at universities and research institutions, and higher education is now indeed on the critical infrastructure list. So the federal government has been engaging more than I think it did previously with universities on what they should be doing around cybersecurity but there's only so much government can do, I guess, for, for almost any organisation. Mostly it is on the organisation to do a lot. And, and you know, with government, hopefully they're, they're focused more on upstream measures that they can do to prevent some of these threats hitting Australia at all um, or sort of sort of helping deal with some of the ramifications um, from some of, the, some of the attacks. But Nadja, I, I know you have strong thoughts on this too. I'm really appreciating the breadth of which government has to provide support and when you look and i know i touched on this earlier you know australia being perhaps a little bit behind where we'd like to be you know that's a huge breadth that of support that needs to be to be uplifted across everywhere it's been great having organizations like ASIO produce the Protect Your Research campaign. That's a wonderful segue for us to take that and then say, well, this is what it looks like on our networks, because realistically, that's where your research is stored. You do when you request. So I know that uh, only very shortly after I started, there were quite a few of us that had clearances. We went down a ASD and ACSC did a big briefing for us. It was very comprehensive. They provided us really detailed insights into the activity that they're seeing, uh, what we should be looking for. In terms of incident response, broadening it more to institutions like the police, which might seek to help. I think Anna's on point when we say we, there's a lot that we should be doing for ourselves. But I think it would be interesting to look at how much are they enabled to provide support. We have, we all know we have a global shortage of cybersecurity personnel. So it's wonderful to say they should, but if the cybersecurity professionals are not there for us to either recruit or even for government to recruit, these are now aspirational targets to set to provide support if you can't literally find the people to provide the support and having come from government you know where we've hired larger numbers you go out to recruit and i know even in our own university and you're still not finding those numbers but in terms of advice and guidance new south wales government has wonderful articles up on their website i was looking at it today around data governance uh, 
really helpful resources, ACSC really helpful resources, ASIO really helpful resources. I think a lot of the information is there. Sometimes there's not the capacity to consume it in that we're low resourced. So they might've put it out there, but the ability to take that in and consume it. And you find the same with threat intelligence platforms. So much comes through, so much is, we've got a lot of industry sharing platforms so much is out there, but now you're struggling with that capacity to consume and make meaningful sense of it. And what does that mean for you? And how does that mean we should be changing things? I think there's also that challenge of when it is there, can you do something with it? Yeah, I mean, there certainly is a lot of advice out there. And I agree both from the Australian government and I also follow closely what the UK government and the US government put out because there's a lot of uh, increasingly joint advisories as well from countries that can really help us to stay up to date and take action against new campaigns or, or certain types of threats. I do love US's, the CISA documentation they put out. They, and they put out really practical, like if any, we, talk, we spoke about tabletop exercises before, CISA publish them and that's the beauty of cyber right it is a global threat and it's a global challenge so it's not even just our government there are a lot of uh, government resources out there more broadly that are incredibly practical and pragmatic because at the end of the day the strategy the intentions are lovely but sometimes I just want a jolly good template so I don't have to write it or a pre-canned risk assessment if you know that there's or anything that the cut the legs off what we need to do is really helpful. But coming back to what we spoke about earlier, it would be great to see some collective stances and standards on expectations for vendors. Particularly, you know, we do have global vendors. And I think that's one of the other things I've noticed coming out of federal government is we can use a lot more international vendors. So everyone's on the cards. And when you talk about research areas, they collaborate with everyone who is of value, and that includes building new tech. So the threat landscape and the complexity of what you have to be across is huge. Um, you're not just working with, inherently when you work in certain institutions, when they say, well, we're only going to work with companies that are Australian or sovereign capabilities on sovereign soil, you've already mitigated some of the risks before you even get out of the gate. But when you open it up to everyone, you're opening up that complexity to understand a lot more. And I'm Nadia. Many thanks for this conversation and for sharing your insights. Back to you, Bart. Thank you, Katra. And also my thanks to Nadia and Anna to share what's on their mind in defending the data, network and privacy of our universities. Foreign interference in academic research and unintended and inappropriate transfers of knowledge are not a cyber issue per se. But cybersecurity is clearly an essential component. And this may become even more important now that screening and scrutiny of visas for researchers of international research partnerships and in and outbound investments are intensifying. Cyber may then be the preferred way in, low risk and high reward. And we know that various countries, such as China, Vietnam, but also countries like Israel and France, have in recent history been involved in the theft of intellectual property have been pursuing active nationalistic industrial development plans and are also generally accepted to possess certain offensive cyber capabilities. Capabilities you would use for strategic espionage. 
Nadia and Anna, as CISOs of a sizable organization, understandably focus on day-to-day operations, business continuity, and maintaining a balance between access and openness and security. But I wonder whether the university sector has this understanding of the strategic landscape and whether the government is providing the sector with adequate support, advice, information, and tools to face off some of the state-based threats of cyber espionage that we are talking about in this podcast series. Thank you for listening. And in the next episode, we'll discuss what elements of international law apply to cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property.